Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures and of the elders. The number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, The Lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth and on the sea, and everything in them say, Blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Hello, Tales of Glory fans, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 1. Actually, this would have been episode seven, but I thought for the new year of 2020, let's go ahead and just jump into a season two and start fresh. Hey, pretty exciting. We're going to dive into St. Teresa of Avila's The Interior Castle. You're probably thinking, what, Mike? Um, I thought this was like a spiritual warfare, um, healing type stuff uh, podcast, right? Well, there's a very good reason behind this. I think in our day and age right now, we kind of have deliverance ministry going crazy. It's nuts. It's a circus. And I even back away from it. Um, I just, I've already, I say people need to be delivered from deliverance right now. We're running around thinking that we're deliverance ministers. We have power of the demonic and it's just, it's separated itself from the identity of Christ. People are taking on identities of deliverance ministers and not taking on that they're servants, right? Jesus came and washed our feet. You know, I don't think these people have this attitude. Um, not just that, it's not my own prejudice about what the ministry is developing into. It's also because, like I said, Jesus came as a servant. We're no bigger than him. We, too, are servants. We must learn the mindset of a servant. And second of all, too, we must learn who he is. Because, no, we're not deliverance ministers. No, we don't have titles of this, titles of actresses, titles of healers, titles and offices of prophetic ministry. We're servants. We go where God needs us, and we do as God needs. In order to be in that lifestyle, you just have to have a, a lifestyle that focuses on Jesus, Right? Your identity must be immersed in Jesus. You must be in a transforming union of your heart, your mind, and soul. Right? What is God's Jesus commandment? To love your Jesus with all your mind, all your heart, and all your strength. Right? How do we do that? We do that through prayer, developing a prayer life. It's all about your prayer life, and it's all about your identity and your intimacy with Jesus and who he is. Nothing else ever matters on this world. Nothing. It's the most important. And so, gosh, what's this got to do with spiritual warfare? Because... Spiritual warfare will always be there, right? It's just, you know, some people, oh my gosh, spiritual warfare, gotta go. If you're just so in depth with Jesus, it doesn't matter if the warfare comes. Sure, you can get pelted with stuff. Remember, no weapon formed against you will prosper because the enemy's allowed to fling stuff at you and they can fling some buses and they can fling some atom bombs, right? Take out some major devastation. But if your mindset is deeply in intimacy with Jesus, it doesn't matter what's flung, you're gonna survive it, you're gonna get through it. And through Jesus, letting him make in all decisions, your mindset with him, you're going to learn, you know, it's prayer life is the key. It's it. Also, I met with people in prophetic offices who can't hear God at all. And I'm just, you know, I mentioned this before. And just it's just sickening how we're running off. We got to be prophetic. We got to do this. We got to do that. And what we're seeing are people who are poor examples of the church because they are in no way intimate with Jesus, nor can they help lead somebody you know, difficult times because they're regimental, they're doctrine, what they learn through books, 
the Western church is overloaded with doctrines or overloaded with um, mentalities, and we need to step out from that. And we need to step into is the reality of Jesus Christ. We need to step into who the Holy Spirit is, how he's going to guide us and teach us. And I think even the church is going through a reformation now, too. I hear so many um, um, speakers and stuff, too. That there, there's a reformation going on. Look at Mario Morello. Look at Francis Chan. Look at Todd White. They're speaking on these, these how the, the church is changing, you know. We got stuck into a corporate mentality rather than fixing our minds on being the hands and feet and fixing our minds on Jesus, who's an intimate friend, who's going to go through us. He's, he's going to ride this life through us, thick or thin, good or bad, through joy and exuberation and through sadness and grief. He's the one we got to connect with. We have to. There's nothing else that matters. And like I said, if spiritual warfare comes, healing comes, you need to give a word to somebody, it's just going to pop in because you know him. He's going to just tell you, hey, Mike, go over and talk to that person. I want you to pray for this or this or that. Right? Um, it's just a totally different mindset. So that's why I just felt the Holy Spirit was leading us towards Mike. Uh, teach some of those people how to pray out there. Some of you do. I think the most magnificent manuscript on prayer right now is through St. Teresa of Avila. Why did I pick that one? Because I deal with the supernatural. I do have mystical experiences. I deal with satanic angels. Those are mystical experiences, right? I deal with demonic mystical experiences. When the invisible realm of God makes itself known, those are mystical experiences. And this lady knew how to be mystical on the Christian side of the fence. Weird stuff happens. Um, in fact, it's somebody the Holy Spirit led me to. I didn't know she existed. Um, probably back in 2008, maybe. Um, and I started reading this. And I go, wow, this, I've seen this stuff. This is what's going on. So it's very cool. So whether you're a beginner or you're not you know, just on the fence of being saved, she provides a, a roadmap, so to speak, on um, your prayer life and the journey. And it's just it's it's fascinating what she has to say. And I think it's, it's worth repeating here. And so I'm going to dedicate some podcasts to the Interior Castle um, and uh, the works of St. Teresa of Avila. There's a lot of stuff we can get out of this that's going to build us as, as who we are in Christ. Number one, your identity in Christ, who you are, and how your soul and heart interacts with the Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and Father, the Triune One who dwells inside you. So with no further ado, let's dive into this amazing saint, um, this nun who knew how to pray, and she knew how to equip the, the, the saints too. Here we go, St. Teresa of Avila, interior castles, but I'm going to start off with some history lesson first. Here we go. To fully appreciate St. Teresa of Avila, let's take a look at her life, her story. The time was the 1500s, the location, Spain. The Catholic Church is flourishing. Spain is the center of the world, and sending out settlers to the New World. During the 1490s, Christopher Columbus had completed four transatlantic voyages to the New World, opening the way for exploration and colonization of the Americas. The world had become a little bit bigger or smaller, however you look at it. But let's go back a few years earlier to the time of 1485 and introduce the grandparents of St. Teresa. They are Juan and Teresa Sanchez, Although St. Teresa is primarily remembered as a, being a Spanish mystic, her grandparents were of Jewish heritage. The threat of the Spanish Inquisition loomed over her grandparents, Juan and Teresa. And sure enough, the Inquisition found them in 1485. Juan was caught being a practicing Judaizer, that is, a Christian who practices Jewish customs and observes the Mosaic law. When you're brought into the Inquisition, it is very public. The results of the Inquisition could result in torture or imprisonment. It is no doubt he was prayed around publicly as a Judaizer. Nothing serious came of the tribunal charges, 
but nevertheless, Juan's reputation was ruined. To erase this humility, he changed his surname to Juan Sanchez de Cepeda. In 1493, Juan moved his family to Avila, where he settled down with a lucrative trade as a cloth merchant. By the 1500s, Juan garnished a small fortune, which allowed him to purchase a nobleman's status, which included making him tax-exempt in his business trade. Juan Sanchez de Cepeda had successfully reinvented himself as a noble Spaniard. One of Juan and Teresa's sons was Alfonso. In the early 1500s, Alfonso married his first wife, Catalina, whom he had three children, two boys and one girl. The girl is named Maria, who be Teresa's older sister. Sadly, Catalina died and left Alfonso a widower. On October 16, 1509, Alfonso ties the knot again and marries a woman with a noble title, Donna Pietras de Omera. Donna had serving title only, and her family no longer held stature. Alfonso and Donna had nine children in their marriage, two girls and seven boys. On March 28, 1515, their third child, Donna Teresa Sanchez, was born, whom we all know now as St. Teresa of Avila. Donna Teresa was born to this world with two noble family names. Alfonso raised his children in a strong Catholic spiritual upbringing. The nobleman's household was said to be filled with spiritual and literary classics of the time. Donna Teresa was also spiritual, vivacious, tenacious, and had a, an active imagination, even at a young age. Donna Teresa read a lot of books in her childhood, and is said with these spiritual books and her vivid imagination, at the age of seven years old, she convinced her 11-year-old brother, Rodrigo, to run away with her and become martyrs as pilgrims and to battle the Moors. The two executed the plan to run away, but were caught by their uncle, Francisco Alvarez de Cepeda, on the town gates, and he brought them home. The childhood life of Donna Teresa was also traumatic. Her mother, Donna Beatrice, was very ill. It is said that to kill time, during her bouts with her maladies, she had her own library of trashy novels, chivalrous romance novels that she loved to read. Alfonso didn't like these, and he wanted them out of his house, and fear the children would read them, namely his daughters. Too late, Donna Teresa got her hands on them and devoured them as reading material. Donna Teresa may have even penned her own romance novels at the age of 15. We know from her autobiography titled Life that Donna Beatriz, Teresa's mom, passed away from her illness at the ages of 33 years old. Teresa was now 12 years old. Donna Teresa's older sister Maria took over the role of being Teresa's mother. At the age of 16, the saint tells us from her autobiography that she entered her rebellious teen years. She became too much to handle for her sister Maria, so Alfonso and Donna Teresa was sent off to the Augustinian Monastery of Our Lady of Grace, a religious reform school for girls, where she stayed at this monastery for a year and a half, the whole time in conflict with God's calling on Donna Teresa to be a nun. During this time in her life, she became very ill, and her father came to retrieve her from the monastery. Her illness got worse, and she became sick, frail, and had severe bouts with fever and fainting. As she endured her illnesses, she tells us in her autobiography that she also wrestled with her heart and God for three long months as to whether or not to accept the nun's habit. She reasoned that she was such a wretch as a sinner that the only way for her soul to really be saved was to accept the habit. When Donna Teresa was at peace with her decision, her passion was to become a Carmelite at the Carmelite Incarnation Monastery in Avila. Her father, Alfonso, was totally against his daughter becoming a nun. He finally gave in to her will. Since Donna Teresa was the daughter of a nobleman, Alfonso had to pay a sizable dowry for her to join the convent. Teresa took her habit on November 3rd of 1534. 
where she took on her now infamous name, Teresa of Jesus. The year that followed, Teresa experienced a huge downturn in her health. Teresa was fainting and said to be speaking insensibly. She was in her early 20s by now. Her father, Alfonso, took her from the Carbolite Monastery to her uncle Pedro's house, where she could be tended by a specialist. Teresa's uncle, Pedro, was a religious man who had an extensive library and prayer books. This is where Teresa discovered the text by Tercer Abisario on a treatise of the Prayer of Recollection, which was a significant form of prayer at her time as a Spanish mystic in the 1500s, something which Teresa speaks a lot about. And she's actually, because of her work here in her writings, we actually found out about a couple of these collections that we didn't know previously existed. So the prayer of recollection was as practicing the presence of God, right? Also, while at her uncle's home, Teresa endured three long months of barbaric 16th century medical practices by her doctors. Teresa described this time of pain as being maddening. Despite the pain she endured, it gave her time of solitude with the Lord. It is not certain whether Teresa had a form of epilepsy known as temporal lobe seizures or some other horrible malady. During her nine months of healing and solitude, Teresa tells us she began to have her mystical experiences of prayer of union and prayer of quiet, which is a fourth mansion mystical state of prayer during her time of prayer. In 1537, the physicians gave up on how to treat Teresa, so they sent her home to her father Alfonso's house. In July of that year, things took a turn for the worse in the saint's health. They gave Teresa the sacrament of the last anointing every time they thought she was taking her last breath. They even had an open grave at the monastery waiting to receive her dead body. Her body was in a horrible state. Her ears were ringing and her body was paralyzed from severe illnesses. And in her autobiography, she says her tongue was just mangled from her biting and chewing down during seizures. St. Teresa had a mystical experience, an open vision of seeing Jesus with the eyes of her soul. In the vision, Jesus stood before her with a stern and grave gaze, where she clearly understood that her behavior of lax spirituality was offensive to him. The vision was so deep in her spirit that she clearly remembered the vision vividly 26 years later. In 1539, she received healing while petitioning Jesus in prayer, and she was able to crawl all of a sudden. She was no longer paralytic. Soon she was able to get up on her legs and walk. She had been healed of her paralysis. It was around this time as she was healing that Teresa noticed she was in a very lax spiritual environment at her monastery, causing her to fall into a lukewarm prayer life. Her soul was in conflict as she gave up mental prayer on her own. Only did she do her um, bound, dutiful vocal prayers in church. In 1541, at the age of 25, Teresa's father passed away. His passing was with illness and torment. He fell into a coma and was said to have woke up just to say his creed and then passed away in the middle of the night. Alfonso was everything to Teresa's life. She said when he died, she lost everything she ever loved in life. Let's leap a decade ahead in our story to where the saint starts having supernatural visitations in 1556. St. Teresa experienced her first rapture where Jesus physically lifts her up off the ground. A year later, St. Teresa is the object of unwanted attention with her mystical experiences. St. Francis Borgia approves the spirit of St. Teresa. In a later part of this decade, St. Teresa's mystical experiences and her prayer intensify. She experiences the sixth mansion, transpiercing of the heart. Her deep intimacy in prayer is becoming more publicly prevalent. In 1561, her superior, Father Evanez, instructs her to write a book on her deep prayer life. She writes her autobiography, The Life of Teresa of Jesus, the Autobiography of Teresa of Avila. All the saints' writings were done so at the request of her superiors and confessors. The goal of superiors were to have her writing about her autobiography life 
So to demonstrate to nuns in the order her spiritual prayer practices and her experiences from her deep prayer life, that was her goal for her to educate and train others to um, develop their interior life, their prayer life, and deep level intimacy as St. Teresa had done. St. Teresa's confessors knew her as being deeply intimate in prayer with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of her prayer experiences were becoming widely known, especially on a couple of occasions where God demonstrated in very public settings that he could pick up Teresa in prayer, called rapture. Her visions and her raptures were becoming widely known. These activities immediately put her on trial with the Roman Catholic Church of Spain and garnished the unwanted attention of the Spanish inquisitors. Here, a woman who the inquisitors knew was of Jewish heritage was having phenomenal mystical experiences. Once her work on life was completed, it was seized by church authorities for review by the inquisitors. Nothing was found heretical in her writing. However, the inquisitors held on to life for some time. They were in no hurry to investigate it or return it to her. In her autobiography, there is also mention of restoring her nephew to life in 1561, which could very well have been a dead raising that was performed by St. Teresa of Avila. Between 1565 and 1566, scholars believe the Way of Perfection was written. We know it was written at St. Joseph's of Avila with the edification and instruction of the first nuns of the Reform. Scholars believe the Way of Perfection was written in 1565, started not long after she finished her biography life. In January of 1577, she requested her copy of her book, Life, in order to add more mystical experiences she had since she first wrote the book quite some time ago. From her church political channels, it didn't look as if her autobiography would return to her anytime soon. In June of 1577, St. Teresa was ordered by Father Jerome Gratian to write the mansions or the interior castles we now know it in America. She begged her superiors to be excused from the task because she had so many books on the subject already have been written by holy and learned men. There was nothing else she thought she could add to this. It is believed that her confessor asked her to write a new book since they didn't believe they would see the Book of Life surface anytime soon. While she wrote the manuscript Mansions, Teresa suffered from tinnitus and she was enduring intense political issues with the running of her convent. Her manuscript of Mansions was completed in November of 1577. And all her manuscripts she's written has transcended time, tests of time, tests of church, tests of prayer. And as we all know it, that in the 1970s, the Pope um, proclaimed that St. Teresa of Avila was a doctor of the Catholic Church because of her, her, her contributions and writings and stuff to, to prayer. So, with our basic history in place, let's move along and take a look at the, the interior castle. In January of 1577, she requested her copy of her book, Life, in order to add more mystical experiences she had since she wrote the book quite some time ago. Her church political channels didn't look as if her autobiography would be returned to her anytime soon. In June of 1577, St. Teresa was ordered by Father Jerome Gracian to write the mansions of the interior castle as we know it in America. She begged her supervisors to be excused from the task because she had so many books on the subject have already been written by holy and learned men. As we know from her history lesson, St. Teresa was asked by her superior, Father Jerome Gracian, to write another manuscript to replace the autobiography life that was in the hands of the inquisitors. What her confessors, spiritual directors, and her superiors wanted her to convey in the print was her deep prayer life and her intimacy with Jesus Christ. We know from St. Teresa's past and her torturous bouts with her body illnesses, Jesus Christ was a reality to her. 
Jesus is the one who delivered her from sickness and, as she described it, her wretched, sinful life. St. Teresa didn't treat her gift of Jesus' grace and mercy lightly. Jesus was an intimate friend and her savior. Without him, she had the wisdom and realization she was nothing. The interior castle is a classical manuscript on prayer where St. Teresa shares with you their intimate friend of hers, Jesus Christ, whom she wants you to meet too. St. Teresa lays out the journey that the soul takes through its stages of spiritual growth. Teresa provides the language we need to know and understand for defining the destinations of our inner growth in prayer life. St. Teresa, being romantic at heart, represents spiritual growth in prayer as a courtship that grows deeply with Jesus Christ. Prayer life is a walk where your heart and soul transform become more like Jesus' heart and mind. This is called a transforming union. Should it come as a surprise then that the primary attribute of prayer is intimacy? We let God into our wounds and pain. We let him into our joy and exuberance. What is prayer? It's lifting our mind and heart to God. Intimacy in prayer means your soul can't fathom a day or an hour without spending time with him in prayer or praising him. The interior castle or mansion is a prophetic revelation that was given to St. Teresa to explain the various stages of spiritual growth in prayer. The vision of the crystal interior castle. The concept of the crystal castle metaphor depicting a praying soul came to St. Teresa in a vision from Jesus. The picture from Jesus showed the soul as if it were a castle made of single diamond or very clear crystal in which there are many rooms, just as in heaven there are many mansions. Which your vision biblically aligns to John chapter 14 verses 2-3, my father's house has many rooms. In the center of the crystal castle is Jesus Christ the King, who gives all the splendor and beauty to the rest of the castle. Teresa has another image of us about the crystal castle. The King dwells in the center. She loved reinforcing her teachings with biblical truths. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 Do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Traveling inside the crystal castle, the closer we approach the center, the greater the light. Again, the crystal castle closely resembles the description of New Jerusalem descending out of heaven in Revelation 21. As the soul travels closer to the interior in its prayer life, the brighter the center of the castle illuminates. If the soul backslides, allows old sin back in, the soul backs away from the center and the light diminishes. The castle is comprised of seven grand rooms, or mansions, as a saint called them. Each mansion or room depicts a destination along the way in a spiritual growth journey. In Teresa's romantic way, each room also represents a stage of intimate courtship with Jesus Christ. In the first mansion, your heart and soul meet Jesus. In the seventh mansion, you have entered a spiritual deep intimacy with Jesus Christ. She calls the seventh mansion destination your journey, spiritual marriage. In our prayer life, we can be any place in the crystal. We can even be outside the mansion, outside ourselves. Where we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, but we never enter into prayer. A person who is outside their mansion is a person who has no intimacy with God and lives outside the palace, their interior life. This is a simple depiction of someone who doesn't begin to understand their own identity in Jesus Christ. They live outside their crystal palace and outside their identity of Jesus Christ. We must enter the crystal castle, our interior prayer life, under our own efforts and work through prayer. This is called ascetical prayer. In the higher mansions, the fourth mansions through the seventh, Jesus begins to interact with our heart and soul under his own grace and will. This is called mystical prayer. The interior life, the interior castle, is a place of intimacy with Jesus Christ. We move through these mansions by God's grace and his interaction with our heart and soul through prayer. Teresa's teachings are always romantic metaphors of what she knows about Holy Scripture. She's intimately in love with Jesus. Her romantic language of her love for Jesus is the only way to read and understand the interior castle. 
I have read PhD papers and dissertations on Teresa's work, and the message is completely lost through academics and theology. It's important to read books like the late Father Dubé's book, The Fire Within, for theological approach to St. Teresa, but it's through the heart and mind that Teresa really speaks on the subject of prayer. The First Mansions, Chapter 1 Plan of this book Paragraph 1 While I was begging our Lord today to speak for me, since I knew not what to say nor how to commence this work which obedience has laid upon me, an idea occurred to me which I will explain, and which will serve as a foundation for what I'm about to write. Paragraph 2 the interior castle. I thought of the soul as resembling a castle formed of a single diamond or a very transparent crystal and containing many rooms, just as in heaven there are many rooms. If we reflect, sisters, we shall see that the soul of the just man is a, but a paradise, in which God tells us he takes his delight. What do you imagine must that dwelling be in which a king so mighty, so wise and so pure, containing himself all good, can delight to rest? Nothing can be compared to the great beauty and capabilities of a soul. However keen our intellects may be, they are as unable to comprehend them as to comprehend God. For, as he has told us, he created us in his own image and likeness. So my comments on paragraph 2. The interior castle, the crystal, is Teresa's language for describing the priceless human soul. She equates the soul to being a significant, valuable jewel of crystal and is part of her flair for describing Genesis 1, that we are created in God's image. We can set no price on the value of God. We are creating his image, then our heart, soul, and spirit must likewise be invaluable. The soul of man is a paradise, another depiction of perfection from creation by our Creator in Genesis. Paradise was a place where God's creation, man and woman, intimately communed with him. After the fall, our heart, soul, and spirit are now where we commune with God. This is a paradise where we are together and we meet. Teresa's interior castle is also her language for telling us that our body is a temple from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.19. She brings it home in her concluding statement of her opening paragraph, nothing can be compared to the great beauty and capabilities of the soul. The beauty is incomprehensible to the human mind, for we were created in his own image and likeness. Take a moment and consider what she said here. We are so self-absorbed with our exterior, worldly looks, we never stop to consider what we are. We are spiritual beings created in his image and likeness. Paragraph 3 our curable self-ignorance. As this is so, we not tire ourselves by trying to realize all the beauty of the castle. Although being his creature, there is all the difference between the soul and God that there is between the creature and the creator. The fact that it is made in God's image teaches how great are its dignities and loveliness. It is no small misfortune and disgrace that, through our own fault, we neither understand our nature nor our origin. Would it not be gross ignorance, my daughters, if, when a man was questioned about his name or country or parents, he could not answer? Stupid as this would be, it is unspeakably more foolish to care to learn nothing of our nature except that we possess bodies, and only to realize vaguely that we have souls. Because people say so, and it's a doctrine of faith, rarely do we reflect upon what gifts our soul may possess, who dwells within them, or how extremely precious they are. Therefore, we do little to preserve their beauty. All our care is concentrated in our bodies, which are but the coarse setting of the diamond or the outer walls of the castle. For me to comment here, Teresa starts by giving us reflective instruction on the beauty of our souls. Although you're created in his image, you are his creature, his creation. When you pray and when you live your daily life, you must remember that you are creatures made in your creator's image. 
Because you are created in his image, you are a spiritual being which gives your existence significance and importance. You are not some random result of primordial ooze compounded over billions of years of nonsensical Darwinian evolution. You are here on purpose by your God. Reflect on your origin in this manner, your God's creation. So again, commenting on this, Teresa tells us that you know all about your family geology or from what countries you're citizens of. But do you know who you are and to whom you belong to internally? Do you know anything about your heart, soul, and spirit other than your faith has told you in sermons and scripture? Do all you know about your soul and heart and interior is merely that you have one? Do you know this is where the Father, Son, Holy Spirit dwell and commune with you? Do you know them? How do you know your body is a temple? So are you only concerned with outward appearance of the body, which Teresa calls the setting of the diamond? Or have you discovered the priceless value of the diamond of the interior castle and the gifts from God it possesses? Paragraph 4. God dwells in the center of the soul. Let us imagine, as I said, that there are many rooms in this castle, of which some are above, some below, others at the side. In the center, in the very midst of them all, is the principal chamber in which God and the soul hold their most secret intercourse. Think over this comparison very carefully. God grant it may enlighten you about the different kinds of graces he is pleased to bestow upon the soul. No one can know all about them, much less so a person ignorant as I. The knowledge that such things are possible will console you greatly should our Lord ever grant you any of these favors. People themselves deprived of them can at least praise him for his great goodness in bestowing them on others. The thought of heaven and the happiness of saints does us no harm, but cheers and urges us to win this joy for ourselves. Nor will it injure us to know that during exile, God can communicate himself to us loathsome worms. It will rather make us love him for such immense goodness and infinite mercy. So my comments here on, on paragraph 4. Teresa again uses scripture to illustrate the components of the interior castle. The castle has many rooms, sometimes called mansions or dwelling places in different translations. The many rooms of the castle is a poetic reflection of John 14.2. In my Father's house there are many rooms. Just as the Father's house in heaven has many rooms, so does our spiritual interior castle of our soul has many rooms. In the center of the castle, the soul, is where God resides, our temple for God. The center room is where your heart and soul have the most intimate conversations with Jesus. Teresa uses the term graces, favors, and bestows a lot in her manuscripts. Graces are gifts from God that he bestows on you on his own free will. Perhaps you're praying and all of a sudden you start feeling tears trickle down your face for no apparent reason. Or you may feel a tingly sensation during your time of quiet praying. Or you may be outside watching an amazing sunset and suddenly get drawn to the beauty of God's creation. These are what St. Teresa refers to as graces and favors. Teresa reminds us that you and I are fallen sinners. While we are here on earth and we are living citizens in exile, of those and worms, as she calls us, God still wishes to communicate with your heart, soul, and spirit to encourage us and to build us up to finish our journey of sanctification and transforming our heart and soul to be more like Jesus. It's God's demonstration of grace and His infinite mercy. Paragraph 5 Why All Souls Do Not Receive Certain Favors I feel sure that vexation at thinking that during our life on earth, God can bestow these graces on the souls of others, a want of humility and charity for one's neighbor. For why should we not feel glad at brothers receiving divine favors, which do not deprive us of our own share? Should we not rather rejoice at His Majesty's thus manifesting His greatness wherever He chooses? 
Sometimes our Lord acts thus solely for the sake of showing his power, as he declared when the apostles questioned whether the blind man whom he cured had been suffering for his own parents' sins. God does not bestow these favors on certain souls because they are more holy than others who do not receive them, but to manifest his greatness, as in the case of St. Paul and St. Mary Magdalene, and that we may glorify him as creatures. So again here, um, Teresa makes an interesting comment that we shouldn't be envious of other brothers and sisters for receiving graces from God. Your soul must exercise humility in this journey through the interior castle. If someone should receive a grace and you didn't, rejoice that your God manifested his demonstration of greatness. We don't ask for God to give us the same manifestation of grace because he is God. God gives out graces and gifts as his desire and choosing. God acts for the demonstration of his power and glory. God does not limit his grace to those who are holy. He may manifest his grace to the unsaved. In order to manifest his greatness, as he did with Mary Magdalene and Apostle Paul and many of the other people Jesus healed. Paragraph 6. Reasons for Speaking of These Favors People may say such things appear impossible and it is best not to scandalize the weak in faith by speaking about them. But it is better that the latter should disbelieve us than that we should desist from enlightening our souls which receive these graces, that they may rejoice and may endeavor to love God better for his favors. Seeing he is so mighty and so great, there is no danger here of shocking those for whom I write about by treating of such matters. They know and believe that God gives even greater proofs of his love. I am certain that if anyone doubts the truth of this, God will never allow her to learn it by experience, for he desires no limits should be set to his work. Therefore, never discredit them because you are not thus led yourselves. So basically what St. Teresa is saying that if someone doesn't believe in receiving graces or favors, they are not in agreement with God interacting with us and probably won't receive these gifts in prayer. They still could if God feels he wants to sway them for deeper faith, but if they're stuck and not agreeing with his in is interacting with them, he won't go against their free will. Unbelief is a hindrance to God. God wants you and I to have no limitations on what he's capable of doing. This is part of an intimate bonding with Jesus Christ. Paragraph 7. The Entrance of the Castle Now let us return to our beautiful and charming castle and discover how to enter it. This appears in Congress. If the castle is the soul, clearly no one can have to enter it, for it is the person himself one might as well tell someone to go into a room he is already in. There are, however, very different ways of being in the castle. Many souls live in the courtyard of the building with a sentinel stand, neither caring to enter farther nor to know who dwells in that most delightful place, what is in it, and what rooms it contains. So here Teresa introduces this paradoxical concept that you must enter into the soul, your own soul. What she is describing is the state of prayer life of the soul, that is either unsaved, hasn't gone beyond their initial salvation, or has backslidden out of the castle. The identity of the soul that is in no relation with Jesus Christ is stuck outside in the courtyard of their own interior castle. This is her metaphorical representation of your heart and soul, stuck in world and flesh. It is outside the castle, ignorant of the interior beauty and the majesty who lives inside. Paragraph 8. Entering to oneself. Certain books on prayer that you have read advise the soul to enter into itself, and this is what I mean. I was recently told by a great theologian that souls without prayer are like bodies palsied and lame, having hands and feet they cannot use. Just so, there are souls so infirm and accustomed to think of nothing but earthly matters that there seems to be no cure for them. 
it appears impossible for them to retire into their own hearts, accustomed as they are to be with the reptiles and their creatures which live outside the castle. They have come at last to imitate their habits. Though these souls are by their nature so richly endowed, capable of communion even with God himself, yet their case seems hopeless. Unless they endeavor to understand and remedy their most miserable plight, their minds will become, as if it were, bereft of movement, just as Lot's wife became a pillar of salt for looking backwards in disobedience to God's command. In this analogy, Teresa equates souls stuck in the courtyard as being palsied. We are spiritual beings in flesh, so if we don't pray, our spirits are sick and palsied or paralyzed. She poetically illustrates the soul as being diseased and paralyzed with its sin. These souls can't use their spiritual hands and feet, and their soul only fixate on worldly desires. The fallen sickness of the soul can be healed by communing with God. Teresa says these souls don't know Jesus since they are trapped outside in their own courtyard. They personify the behaviors of reptiles and creatures that live in the courtyard with them. The reptiles and creatures are, of course, demonic. They're sin. To the souls that live outside the castle, their life seems hopeless because it is void of God. They don't see the light of God emanating from inside of their interior castle. As these souls live in a miserable darkness, they have no clue that God is inside them and is the only one who can heal them. Paragraph 9. Prayer. As far as I can understand, the gate by which to enter this castle is prayer and meditation. I do not allude more to mental than to vocal prayer, for if it is prayer at all, the mind must take part in it. If a person either considers to whom he is addressing himself, what he asks, or what he is who ventures to speak to God, although his lips may utter many words, I do not call it prayer. Sometimes, indeed, one may pray devoutly without making all these considerations through having practiced them at other times. The custom of speaking to God Almighty as freely as we with a slave, caring nothing whether the words are suitable or not, but simply saying the first thing that comes to mind from being learnt by rote, frequent repetition, cannot be called prayer. God grant that no Christian may address him in this manner. I trust His Majesty will prevent any of you, sisters, from doing so. Our habit in this order of conversing about spiritual matters is a good preservative against such evil ways. So what's Teresa saying here? Your heart and soul enters into itself by beginning to establish a prayer life. St. Teresa says the way to enter the castle and step into the first mansion is by starting to learning to pray. There are two primary forms of prayer. She mentions first, mental prayer, which are internal conversations with Jesus. The second form of prayer is vocal prayer, the kind of recite aloud like liturgies and church service. There was a debate in Teresa's time as to whether mental prayer or vocal prayer was breast for prayer. She offered her wisdom that even in vocal prayer you must use your mind to commune with God. So whichever you choose or, or works for you is what you need to go with. During her time, the Catholic Church was also discouraging mental prayer because it could control what the congregation was praying with vocal prayer. Teresa gives us instruction on how to pray. It's not rambling insensibly. Consider what you're saying and to whom you're speaking to. Humility and obedience are key for prayer. You are a servant. He is God. She says what is important is not whether you choose mental prayer or vocal prayer, but that you focus on who it is you're praying to. The key prayer is to focus on God and who He is. You know, most of us go to God and you know use Him like a genie rather than God. God, I need this. I need that. That's she's she's kind of steering us away from that. Focus on who God is. He's God of creation. You know, give Him adoration. Give Him worship. You know, raise Him up to who He is, and what we aren't. So, from other Saint Teresa's classic masterpieces on prayer, um, the way of perfection, 
She used another metaphor that your soul is a garden. And God is the garden keeper. As you first begin your prayer walk in life, you must look at yourself as a garden that Jesus will delight in tending. But it is a new garden with untilled soil, bad soil, and weeds. Jesus will tend the garden and remove the constrictive weeds as you begin to develop a lifestyle prayer. These are the initial baby steps to the beginning of prayer life. As we commit to our interior life endeavor with Jesus' help, flowers begin to sprout in our garden. Jesus teaches us how to water the garden. Watering the garden is St. Teresa's poetic language for praying. The beginning garden is producing some flowers, but we must be careful and work with the gardener, Jesus Christ, so nothing in our garden dies off, right? It's a new garden that needs to be tended to and protected. These new budding flowers produce a heavily beautiful fragrance that Jesus delights in. Now let us see how this garden is to be watered, so that we may understand what we have to do and what our labor will cost us. Also, whether the gain will outweigh the effort, or how long it will take. It seems to me that the garden may be watered in four different ways. This is St. Teresa. She says there's four different ways to water the garden from her book, The Way of Perfection. Either the water must be drawn from a well, which is very laborious. That means we're beginning prayer. We're starting to draw water. We drop the bucket and we start pulling up stuff, right? We're starting to um, um, work under our own efforts to pray and connect with God. So either the water must be drawn from a well, which is very laborious, or by a water wheel and buckets, which is worked by a windlass or a windmill. I have sometimes drawn it in this way, which is less laborious than the other, and brings up more water. The first two methods of watering the garden are called ascetical prayer. Or it may flow the third and fourth way. So the other way is the water may flow from a stream or a spring, which waters ground much better. For the soul then retains much more moisture and needs less watering, which entails far less work for the gardener. Or by heavy rain, when the Lord waters it himself without any labor of ours, this is an incomparably better method in the, than the rest. So this latter two forms of prayer, of laborless praying, are called mystical prayer. This is where, um, in the first two ways, we're looking at, we're pulling up a bucket, right? That's, a, that's first water. The second way is getting a little easier because we install a windmill. So we're starting to get a little bit more mechanical, like things just start working or flowing better. Um, but it's all under our own effort. We're connecting with God. Third and fourth methods of watering, God comes to us. This is mystical prayer where either he's going to provide a stream of prayer towards us, or he's going to provide a heavy range to be cool, right? That's, that's obviously saturated by him. These are mystical prayer, um, which means he's coming to us, he's doing the work, and we're not instigating it like we're in ascetical prayer doing the work. Paragraph 10. Those who dwell in the first mansion. Let us speak no more of those crippled souls who are in the most miserable and dangerous state. Unless our Lord bid them rise, as he did with the palsied man, who had waited more than 30 years at the Pool of Bethesda. We will now think of the others who at last entered the precincts of the castle. They are still very worldly, yet have some desire to do right, and at times they will rarely commend themselves to God's care. They think about their souls every now and then, although very busy. They pray a few times a month, with minds generally filled with thousands of other matters, for where there is treasure is, there is the heart also. Still, occasionally, they cast aside their cares. It is a great boon for them to realize to some extent the state of their souls and to see that they will never reach the gate by the road they are following. They're starting to get little convictions of the Holy Spirit here, right? So Teresa's offering prayer advice here. We're going to we're going to have to learn how to pray, so our first five seconds over ever praying may not get us deep in the first mansion. You might just be stepping your foot through the threshold and parts of your body are still outside in the courtyard. You keep you in a state like this for five minutes or 40 years. Why? A number of factors. Your perseverance in prayer, inner healing, 
and any other things. Consider all transitions to the seven mansions are gradual. Over time, you'll begin to understand where it is that you are in the mansions, right? Just like, hey, I'm heading for mansion number two. It doesn't work that way. It's like you, you, you prairie, <clears throat> and you suddenly realize, wow, I'm in the second mansion. I left the first mansion, maybe even two weeks ago or something. So it's just the gradual um, progressions in prayer. It's just, there's, there's, there's no milestones. We just see um, road marks, she says. So if you're only praying a few times a month, you're probably in the first mansions. Your mind is self-absorbed with worldly desires. The souls in the first mansions are praying, but probably have yet to fully surrender to God. Amazing that St. Teresa shows that salvation is an ongoing process. Even though you receive the miracle of salvation, you still have lots of work ahead to do on yourself. You need to rid yourself of generational familiar behaviors in your life. Your soul needs to realize the wretched state they're in to progress deeper into the castle. This is the intimacy with Jesus, right? He's going to work it out with you. Paragraph 11. Entering. At length they enter the first rooms in the basement of the castle, accompanied by numerous reptiles which disturb their peace and prevent their seeing the beauty of the building. Still, it is a great gain that these persons should have found their way in at all. So here she's telling us to be realistic as we enter the first mansion. She says it's the bottom floor room. Expect a lot of struggle when you enter the first mansion. You may be a newly saved soul, or a soul that has been saved or palsied for years, even decades. This is what I call the frozen chosen. Have realistic expectations. Your reptiles, your demons, and pre-saved behaviors, sin, and family dysfunctions will enter with you. They'll make it hard for you to stay in the first mansion and do everything they can to pull you back outside in the courtyard. The reptiles will do everything in their power to prevent you from advancing deeper into your interior prayer life. There will be lots of spiritual warfare just getting into the bottom floor of the first mansion. You must confront the reptiles in the mansion in order to continue progressing into deeper mansions. Paragraph 12. Difficulties of the Subject You may think, my daughters, that all this does not concern you because by God's grace you are farther advanced. Still, you must be patient with me, for I can explain myself on some spiritual matters concerning prayer in no other way. May our Lord enable me to speak to the point the subject is most difficult to understand without personal experience of such graces. Anyone who has received them will know how impossible it is to avoid touching on subjects which, by the mercy of God, will never apply to us. This last paragraph is kind of interesting. She's providing an open disclaimer. The first mansion may seem petty to you. She's talking to her nuns in her convent. You know these nuns have already know how to pray, so the first mansion seemed like review material for them. Then she tells us to be patient with her. The interior castle may seem odd representation, but it's the only way she believes she knows how to educate us on interior prayer and the destinations ahead of us on this journey. She tells us to hang in there. Some of these experiences from God during prayer may seem weird or unbelievable unless you yourself experience them. With the Spanish mystics in Spain during her time, St. Teresa was the only one having these experiences in advanced prayer. So you may have had a hard time understanding and believing some of the graces of God until you've experienced your own graces with Jesus. So that wraps up. Interior Castle, First Mansions, Chapter 1. Beginning Prayer We enter the soul by beginning to pray. If you're a beginner, you might be asking yourself, what is prayer? Prayer is a conversation in your mind with Jesus Christ. Prayer could be vocal or mental. Perhaps you had conversations in your mind that although seemed one-sided and you were doing all the talking, 
led you to your knees, and you cried out to Jesus that you couldn't live this life of sin anymore. And if something didn't happen, a change, you don't know what would become of your life. And then at that moment, something struck your heart, and you asked Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're asking that question right now. Jesus, if you're real, I need your help. Please come help me. As raw these conversations are, those are in fact prayers. The conviction of your heart with crying out to God is a powerful form of prayer. This is actually the most powerful form of asking Jesus in your heart and bringing a change you need. Jesus, come be the Lord of my life. I am stuck in this sinful lifestyle and I need you to walk me out of this. Salvation is very simple. It requires a crying out of your heart and allowing Jesus to respond. So perhaps right now, you're just in a position right now, you're crowned to God. Jesus, Jesus, I've heard about you. I, I feel like you're in real. I've had these things in my heart feel like you're real, but I can't feel you or see you right now. But I do know whatever's going on in my life right now, I can't take it anymore. It's just, it's just been horrible. It's hard. Unless you change something in my life right now, Jesus, I, I don't know what. I need your help. Jesus, come. Jesus, if you're true, you're real. Come to me. Come be the Lord of my life, my Savior, Jesus. I need you. I desperately need you. Come to me. And that's how you just open in prayer. That, you know, we go through some horrific stuff in life, and that's how it is. It's most prayers. It's like, man, we go through some suffering. We go through some stuff, but that's how you reach out to him and talk to him. You can be very raw. Um, yeah, as raw as you need to be to express your heart to him and just connect with him. And perhaps maybe you've already said a salvation prayer or something at church and you're kind of confused, like, what is this thing prayer? What do I do next? Because I know I work with a lot of people. Some people have been in their church for years, decades, don't know how to pray. It's like, that's, that's, that's not good because you're missing out, as St. Teresa said, this, this intimate person that dwells inside you, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And they've been there all along wanting to talk to you, but you need to step into the first mansions, so you know, step out of the courtyard. One of the best ways to learn to pray is to go to Matthew 6, because that's where Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. In Matthew 6, we find the Lord's Prayer, also called the Our Father Prayer, which most of you as today. So how do we pray the Our Father? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It is not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Now, I was raised Catholic, so this was one that was very familiar to me. It was usually used for penance or other things, which, you know, I, I never came back to it two years much later. This was actually just a way of communicating with God. In fact, um, around 2007, when God was waking me up to spiritual warfare, I didn't know how to pray against spiritual warfare. When I was under a huge demonic attack, all I would do was recite the Our Father's Prayer and watch this stuff break off, right? So it's multifaceted. You just you can learn to pray off it and just, you know, or just, you know, stay with that. You can meditate on that prayer too. You can read it out loud, which would be vocal prayer, or you could just um, recite it inside your mind and memorize it. I, I recommend memorizing this prayer and as you memorize it, you know, use that as mental prayer. And doing so, you can have a conversation with Jesus, you know, what's this line mean? What does this mean? It's okay to ask questions. That would be mental prayer. I strongly recommend that you develop your prayer life and create a sacred space in your home where you go out every time you want to spend time with God, right? My sacred space is my desk. When I go there for prayer, I have a lot of time in my busy schedule to spend time with Jesus and Him alone. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? I spend time with them. The Holy Spirit's going to come during that time too if you're reading scripture at your desk, right? The 
Holy Spirit's going to unpack the scripture. Talk to him. What, what am I seeing here? He's the teacher, right? He's the comforter. This is your sacred time. Uh, at your sacred space. I recommend setting one up. As a beginner, see if you can commit five to ten minutes in prayer. Um, this would include like um, prayer time, like using our Father, or use it for um, reading scripture and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal um, the meaning of the scripture to you. Um, he's the one that unpacks the, the Bible. You know? I don't care how many times you read the Bible, you're going to find something new through it. So the Holy Spirit's going to unpack something as you're more mature and you grow. So as you progress in your prayer, make it longer. Stretch out the time, right? If you're stuck, read your Bible. Ask Jesus what book or verse he wants you to read or meditate on. That's how I kind of read through the Bible now. I ask Jesus when I finish a chapter. He usually has me read two chapters simultaneously. And um, it's however long it takes. I started um, about nine months ago in the book of John, um, thinking, okay, this is going to be an easy read, but God unpacks so much, I'm still reading through the book of John. During that time, too, he asked me to read Deuteronomy, which I thought I'd be stuck in, but I actually read through it in about a month. So, you know, it's just however long it's going to take you. And both of those were just so enlightening on what the Holy Spirit unpacked. So just take your time. If you don't get it at first, it's okay. Just put your time in first, right? Be patient. That's your key in the first mansions. And probably first through third mansions. Patience, 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 and perseverance. You know? So what I might do too, is in fact, not what I might do. A lot of times I'll start my, my sacred sessions here with beginning with meditating on Psalm 4610, right? Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. This is a good beginning mental prayer practice. Meditate on the verse to still your mind of its activities of daily functionality. What do I mean by that? Still the mind from worrying about that project you have at work and the deadline, right? You just got to kind of push that out. That's still in your mind, right? I'm not going to deal with this right now. This is not purging the mind like a Zen Buddhist meditation, right? That's demonic. When you're purging yourself, you're allowing yourself for demonic occupation. When you're still in your mind, you're just telling everybody inside your mind and your faculties, be quiet. This time right now is devoted to the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the Father in Heaven. And we're just going to still our minds so we can be receptive to them and be with them, right? It's kind of like clearing your mind with, with a loved one. You don't want to work, do work projects when you're with somebody you love, right? You want to just, I don't want to work on this right now. That's for work. I want to focus my mind on the person I'm with. That's what being still is. Stilling your mind to focus it on being with the Holy Spirit, right? Let Him fill you. So, so Zen Buddhism, you purge, you dump yourself. Uh, being still and stilling your mind Psalm 46.10 is this calming your mind and letting the Holy Spirit come in and being filled versus a purge. We'll cover more prayer techniques as we progress through the interior castle. For right now, these are good. First mansion prayer habits to develop. Introduce yourself to Jesus, right? We're stepping into a relationship. There's going to be some awkwardness. You're not going to know what to say to him, all right? Just start the relationship and work through the awkwardness. That's the first mansions. This is the beginning of your intimate friendship with Jesus. This is the dropping of your bucket into the well and drawing the water. Remember what St. Teresa said about first waters? It will be laborious, but worth the life-changing endeavor. So start dropping that bucket in the well. Start your prayer. Conclusion. This concludes our study on St. Teresa's classic manuscript and prayer, The Interior Castle, First Mansions, Chapter 1. Next time, we'll dive into Interior Castle, First Mansions, Chapter 2, where St. Teresa discusses the dangers of sin in our lives. If you'd like to help out with the alms to Tales of Glory, we would truly be blessed by your offering. Go to our blog site, where the show is hosted, fieldguidespiritualwarfare.blogspot.com. There's a PayPal button for donations. You'll also find the show notes of this episode on that site as well. And there's also spots for um, sending your comments to me. That's where you make comments on the show, is at, at that blog site, fieldguidespiritualwarfare.blogspot.com. 
Tales of Glory is copyright Michael Norton, 2020. God bless you guys. Now go meet with that incredible friend, Jesus Christ.